Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I'm your host, Stephen Pinecker, and look, folks, who's in the house, Robert Messick of Book of Mormon hey. Editions. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to do this with you again. I know. So like, uh, folks, as you know, about every six months, Robert comes on the program. We do a Book of Mormon geek out, but we also have a special guest on Richard Saunders. Welcome to the program. Hi there. Thank you. So Richard wrote this really interesting book about the 1920 edition of the Book of Mormon. But before we get there, we decided we're going to do a little Book of Mormon geek out. And uh, we're going to talk about maybe some of our favorite uh, books of Mormon editions, perhaps some new finds since we last talked. Uh, Robert, I'd like to maybe just uh, hand that off to you. Uh, but before we do that, folks, I got I got housekeeping I got to do. Check out the merch store, mormonbookreviews.com. Get a hat, get a coffee mug, get yourself a mouse pad, you name it, it's there. Just somebody ordered a coffee mug yesterday. Thank you very much, appreciate it. And uh, so check out morningbookreviews.com. Uh, the merch is doing pretty well, hoodies, all you name it. And also wearing the shirt. If you want to support the channel financially, you can go into the links in the description and support us on Patreon and PayPal. And thanks for all those of you who are contributing to the channel. Robert, how are you today? I'm wonderful. I'm so excited to be with you today. Great. So I would like for you just to maybe uh, talk a little bit about maybe a Book of Mormon you've encountered recently that we didn't talk about or an addition and maybe just talk a little bit about your channel. Um, as you know, I'm Robert from Mormon Book, actually Mormon, oh my goodness. I'm Robert from Book of Mormon Editions and my YouTube channel is called Book of Mormon Editions. And uh, we talk about uh, printings, publications and various editions of the Book of Mormon. I think uh, today we'll talk all things Book of Mormon. And so I'm excited. Um, I do actually have two new ones that you guys are gonna see even before my channel views it. So um, the first one, is this one. It is a small black one, but if you can see, it's called the Nephite Records. Oh, yeah. And uh, what was really interesting is uh, this one was printed as almost one of the first, first third party editions that, um, long story short, uh, Oliver Cowdery had the printer's manuscript when he passed away in 1850s. Um, that printer's manuscript of the Book of Mormon passed to the Whitmer family in Missouri and was kept and preserved. And the Whitmer family then eventually published a copy of the Book of Mormon. Rather than copyright issues from Salt Lake, they called their book the Nephite Records. And so um, afterwards, they um, sold the printer's manuscripts to the RLDS Church, and it's been preserved since then. So we are very thankful to the Whitmer family for preserving the, the printer's manuscript and their copy of what's called the Nephite records. So it's from 1899 and the print run was really, really small. So I'm really excited that I got a, oh, I got awesome. a uh, Nephite records edition. Okay. So now that's, uh, that is it the same versification as the Salt Lake edition. Yes. And what happened was, uh, uh, Orson Pratt in 1879 did the new Salt Lake text, uh, the new Salt Lake versing and chapters and rather than um, do something different, they actually copied um, Salt Lake's edition, or Salt Lake's versing and chaptering and, um, and did that. And so they said the closer they can get to Salt Lake, the better. And um, so, yeah, it's kind of verse for verse uh, Salt Lake chip matching. So how did you track that copy down? Um, this is interesting, actually, from the YouTube channel. Um, somebody called me and says, hey, this is what I've got and I'm wanting to you know, sell it. And uh, I made her an offer and 
Um, she was reluctant to send it to me and I was reluctant to give her cash. And so we actually had a third party, uh, um, a businessman insurance company said, hey, we'll, uh, uh, we'll hold it at our office. Okay. You send it to there. And I send the check to her when it cashed. I got the book, after, went to the office and got the book. So it was an escrow um, until the deal is done. So it went really well. And uh, I was really excited that a third party, I know lawyers do that often that they hold collateral for payment, things like that, and, you know, do in-betweens. And it worked and I was really excited. And I, I really thank her for um, giving an opportunity for me to get that. Oh, that is so cool, dude. I love it. So um, how many known copies are there of that edition? Oh, Richard, maybe you might know this. I expect it's less than 500 and I think surviving less than a couple of hundred. I don't know. Wow. Yeah, the, the edition size was never known. Uh, it was done oddly um and, and I, ironically they wouldn't have had to worry about the the uh, the copyright because the book was long out of copyright by the time they did it but everybody was afraid of copyright at the time so interesting uh robert that's so cool i i, I want to get back to you but richard i want to go to you and ask you uh do you have an interesting book of mormon edition that you would like to talk about I've got mostly just copies. Uh, individual copies are significant to me. So if I've got my father's copy of the Book of Mormon and mm. you know that kind of thing. Uh, for a guy who does book history, I don't have really a favorite edition other than I was very pleased to get um, my library edition of the first of, of the 1920 copy, which is really a spanky copy. It's in great condition. Um, for about 20 bucks at a bookstore that really didn't care. So, uh, you know, I was, I was pleased with that. This was the first bound edition of the thing that we'll talk about today of that, of that particular book. Um, and then individual printings get me because um, some of them are harder to find. For instance, the 19, the last printing of the 1948 edition is very, very difficult to find simply because it, it was an old book. It is an old book and people just throw them away when they're done. So it was dated 1980. Do I have it here? I don't, yeah, I do. It's dated 1980. Oh yes. Um, and it's a standard garden variety, common copy of the Book of Mormon, but try to find one with a 1980 impression date. And it's, it's not an easy thing to get. So is that particular one with Angel Moroni that largely covered there, is that was there a 1981 edition of that cover or was it just 1980 that had that particular cover? No, the 1981 edition looks like this. Yeah. Uh, this is the, this is the new edition that yep. came out. So yeah, that, that one Robert's got. Robert, okay. this one, they were fairly commonly done. I, this was the quote, quote, hardback. It's a softback with hard boards. Um, this is the 1981 copy and you'll notice it's missing something. This is the 1979. Well, actually it's, I think 1976 was the first time that they used this particular design on the cover, but it was used serially. So it was just, it, they cranked out tens of thousands of things and missionaries gave away all over the place. Okay. Well, I discuss um, when people ask me my story about what made you so interested in the Book of Mormon, I always talk about how when I was in a Marriott hotel and I came across these Arnold Freiburg paintings mm -hmm. and I remember watching Robert's program and you did an episode on that particular edition and that was my aha moment because that was the edition that i came across probably around seven years old at a marriott hotel 
And I always thought I couldn't find that edition. That explains why it's not an easy one to find because it was kind of in transition. And I would, I would, I would hazard to guess it was probably around 1980 that I encountered that edition of Book Mormon. And I want to thank Robert for your channel. This is what the invaluable resource that your channel is, is that you're documenting all these editions. And I think it's so cool. And so you're able to help me figure out which edition of the Book of Mormon was there. So props to you, Robert. Thank you very much. Thank you. So uh, Robert, um, let's talk about maybe some, uh, some other edition you'd like to talk about. I have one more and I totally am geeking out on this one. Um, this looks Greek. But this is, this is the Deseret um, oh, Alphabet yeah. Book of Mormon. And so I was really excited about it. What was interesting is uh, this one was published as a rebound. And so what happens is this was published in 1869 and the covers deteriorated. So they re rebound it, but they kept the spine and, and glued the spine on it. But it is uh, inside, it's the text of the Deseret Alphabet. So the interesting part about this is only 500 were printed. And uh, Desert Alphabet, um, they try to kind of create a um, alphabetical language to help migrants learn verbal English better. And um, the challenges with the Transcontinental Railroad coming in, there was newspapers and magazines coming from the East Coast that flooded the Utah market more than the Desert Alphabet could take over and take off. And so um, it was a it was a good. Good try, but uh, once again, these Desert Alphabet books, uh, they did readers and kind of some study guides in the thousands, but these full volume Book of Mormons was only one in 500. So I was excited that, uh, that I see a, a full edition Book of Mormon. So where'd you get that? Um, eBay. Um, okay. I, I'm, I'm no, uh, no stranger to eBay when I, when I see and look through these things, so. Um, wow, cool. Hey, Richard, I had a question for you. So that edition of the Book of Mormon that you said you bought at a bookstore, they didn't seem to care about it. Was this a bookstore in Utah? Oh, yeah. Huh. You have to remember the books don't get valuable until someone gets interested in them. They're just an old book. Hmm. Um, and eBay has given us a new way to reach more people that have interest. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the prices go up or down or sideways. It just means that there's a larger walk-in, larger walk-in place to come to. Okay, so now, folks, I have talked about this edition with uh, Casey Kern um, and my got my guy Corey Howell, the Methodist, who's a Mormon geek. When they premiered their new Book of Mormon online, and so I want to share with my audience this edition of the Book of Mormon, which I think is really cool. So I uh, po posted a photograph. Uh, a new photograph in my background on my Facebook page. And I was, I was contacted by somebody and said, I got a book that I'd like to add to your collection. So, okay, what is this? And I thought, I get this, I open it up. Now, folks, this is not an 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon, <laughs> but it's close. And I'll tell you why. 15 years ago, there was this uh, reprints of the Book of Mormon. This is, this is, Brent Ashworth told me, this is the most authentic uh, um, reprint of the Book of Mormon ever made. And uh, what makes it so unique is there are only 750 copies made. But then there was a gentleman who acquired 149 copies. This gentleman had a Book of Mormon without covers, and he bought 149 of these. And then he had the publisher sew in four original pages from the Book of Mormon in each edition. Now, the oh, cool wow. thing is, is I have pages 115 through 118. Yeah. 
So folks, I have page 116 in case you're wondering where it's at. And uh, it's really cool. Um, I, this is very valuable. Uh, Brent Ashworth told me what he thinks it's worth and it's worth quite a bit. And uh, he's actually had a couple come through a store. I assumed he had a copy. He said, no, he said, I, I wasn't presented one. So I, I, it's an honor to have received this edition. And I keep on telling Christian folk, I said, folks, listen, if, if people from the Mormon church, Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, want to bless me, I'm going to receive those blessings. And that's why I love you people so much. And so, yeah, pretty cool stuff. Um, and so this is a unique edition. It's the only one that has those pages in it. Um, so I don't know. Did you have any questions for me about this edition, Robert or Richard? That's pretty cool. When was it done? Uh, 2007. Uh, okay. The publisher, I don't think even exists anymore because I went to their website. Um, here, let me show you because it has a card. So it comes with this authentication on here. And uh, let's see. Uh, good question. Oh, yeah. LDS First Editions, copyright 2007. And then I went to LDSFirstEditions.com and that, um, that website is no longer valid. It also came with a DVD explaining like the history of the volume. So yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. But yeah, 750, but then there are only 149 that had those uh, things in there. So yeah. Um, That's pretty cool. I've not seen that one before. Yeah. And, yeah. and to have original pages inside of it, that makes it really special. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for validating and affirming this. This is really exciting to me. Uh, so uh, Richard, was there any uh, anything else you wanted to talk about? Any other editions of the Book of Mormon you want to talk about? Oh, probably not for me. Okay. So uh Robert, you know, you've got this channel called Book of Mormon Editions. And of course, I've had you on a couple of times and I tell people I'm your number one fan. And it dawned on me this morning. Your channel is probably the only channel that I've watched every single one of their videos. So I, that makes me like an uber fan. And considering the channels I watch, I just want to let you know, I'm a big fanboy here. And I really appreciate you coming on. I love it. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate the validation. It makes me uh, want to actually do more. And um, in the summertime and me being a family man, I'm realizing it is super hard to uh, create content. So my apologies to uh, my fan base for the delays on any uh, videos that I don't publish, but I'm, I've still got a backlog and a list and I, I you know, it inspires me to, to get it done. So I appreciate it. Good. All right. Anyway, I can encourage you to put out more product. I'm going to do that, dude. So a couple things. Um, I talked to Ross Anderson. He is an evangelical former Mormon. He wrote a book uh, called Understanding the Book of Mormon. Um, it's actually, I, man, that's probably 15 years since I've read this thing, but it's actually a pretty good book. And Ross is not anti-Mormon. Um, he's, he's an interesting dude. I'm going to have him on my program. Also another book. I just got this uh, copy because this is Book of Mormon related stuff. Uh, this is my friend Josh Gailey, who's with the Church of Jesus Christ. And he just came out with this book. This is a reader's copy called Witnessing Miracles, Historical Evidence for the Resurrection and the Book of Mormon. And he basically uses all the apologetic arguments that evangelicals use in favor of the resurrection. He uses, he just takes it one step further and says, I can apply the same arguments in favor of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon as I can. And actually you can make a stronger case for the coming forth of the Book of Mormon than you can for the resurrection. Uh, that's interesting mm. stuff to me. So that's kind of Book of Mormon related. And of course, you know, just, just to have a little fun here, uh, my guy, Matthew Gill, green screen messed up. This is the Chronicles of the Children of Aranek. There's probably only five copies of this stateside. Uh, he's based in England. Uh, this is the uh, purported history of the builders of Stonehenge. And uh, uh, it's a very fascinating story. They are related to the Jaredites. 
and uh, it's it's uh, I was glad to have him on. So there's some little bit of restoration scripture and stuff that's related. So pretty cool stuff, huh? Yeah, that's interesting. Yep, very interesting. So Robert, um, let's see here. Do you have any uh, anything else you want to talk about before we uh, transition to Richard's book? Um, I think I'm pretty good. Um, I was just excited that you know when you called me and you said, "Hey, you know, I got this guy on and." Um, you know, this is what he's doing and things like that. You got to talk with him and maybe you'll tell a story. But I said, yeah, he's uh, he's emailed me and asked me some questions. So I was really excited that, uh, um, you know, he contacted us both. So, yeah, that's that's the cool thing, folks, is what happens is, OK, it's the closing night of the uh, Mormon History Association. And I think it was Thomas Murphy. He goes and he said, you ought to have Richard come on your program. I'm like, you know, let's do that. So it was the ice cream social time. I, of course, it's a Mormon thing, so it's ice cream social, right? Got to be ice cream. Be <laughs> so, and it's Aggie ice cream, too. So that's right. So I walk up to you, and I believe your your wife had already knew who I was, and she said something like, oh, yeah, I told you about him, which I thought was really cool. And uh, and so then I invited you to come on the program. You're like, oh, yeah, let's do it. And then later that evening, because I realized, oh, Robert's on Pacific time, so I could still call him. So I hey, Robert, guess who I talked to? So that gives you the idea. So that's where it all was hatched, is the closing night at the Mormon History Association, which is an awesome thing. It's been a really great blessing to me to meet and connect with people there. And so I was like, okay, this is cool because I'd seen um, advertisements from your book. It's published by Great Cofford Books. Robert, why don't you hold the copy up? All right. All right. So that's it. And, and Richard, I want you to tell me the full title of this book. The full title is the 1920 edition of the Book of Mormon, A Centennial Adventure in Latter-day Saint Book History, because it was supposed to have been published barring COVID in time for the 100th, the 100th anniversary in December of 2021, or yeah, December 2020. Didn't make it. Didn't make it. So cool stuff. And I'm going to leave a link in the description so that uh, if you're interested in purchasing a copy, you can. And it's published by my friends at Greg Cofford Books. Thank you guys so much. Uh, please get me a copy of that too, if you can. I know you're, you're a little stingy on that, but I, I would appreciate a copy if it's possible. I would love it. Um, and thanks to Greg. Uh, I just really appreciate. So now, Richard, let's talk about, first of all, uh, what made you decide to write this book? In other words, did a, did Greg Cofford books come to you and say, we need you to write this book? Or did you go to them nope. and say, I want to write the book? Nope, nope. In fact, I've been, I've been working on this for, for quite a while, long before Greg got involved. And then I, I finally decided when it was ready to go, I thought, you know, rather than just giving this to six people that I know that I think are interested, and neither one of you were on that list uh, at the time, um, I said, Greg, what do you think? And he jumped on it. So it, it really had its origin in me. Well, I'm an, I'm an American social historian, but I worked in the printing industry, publishing industry in the 90s. And I've been interested in print since forever. And really what this was, was my just being tired of trying to explain why this book is not the same as, or why this book is not the same as this book. This is the 1920 edition. This is the 1948 edition. And, you know, I got so tired of looking through eBay with people who didn't know what they were talking about. And so I finally said, okay, darn it, I'm going to put down what I know. And, and this is the result. And of course, like any project, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger as it goes along. So that's kind of where it comes from. So, and so how, long have you been start, how long ago did you start on this project? Oh, 
I, you know, I've, I've known about the, the basics for 20 years, okay. but it's only took me about five years to write the book, which was fairly quick. Okay. Oh, interesting. So um, you felt it was important that people know, uh, because you, like you said, you got frustrated that people were confusing stuff. Let me just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, let's, let's not say important. I, it's just one of those things where you can draw a line and have it mean something. Okay. okay? The text doesn't change. The, ge the geography of the book changes. Just a second, I've got my somebody coming. Yeah, no problem. So Robert. Um... Which it makes me feel super guilty because I'm actually at fault on this. As soon as I read the book, I was like, oh no, he's criticizing me too. Because so, and, and maybe uh, some, some general context was 1920 was published and they created a new format and this was significant. And Richard, I'd really like your, your insight on this, but they created a new format and your book says that they made a new copyright in 1948. Yep. But for me, my vocabulary is they kept the 1920 format, which means um, number of verses per page, the number of page count, um, the page breaks, even if they did a new copyright. So uh, my fault is, yeah, this 1920 format meaning page layout and book style has done from 1920 through 1981, even if they changed covers. So I'm at fault on this thing by not well, recognizing a, a real nice break. Yeah, and I, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody other than a couple of, of booksellers who just really twisted my tail. Um, and, and part of it is that the technology that produced these books is gone. And understanding the technology helps to make sense out of the rest of it. When you understand the technology, when you understand the limits of the technology, then all of the things line up and make a whole lot more sense. And that's really why I did the book, because, you know, I'm a printing geek, too. I, the idea of print has always fascinated me. And it's this was just one way. And really, to look at the story of the change in American printing technology between the 20s and the 40s. That's, that's why I did the book, is because it wasn't just about the Book of Mormon, it was also about the shift in, in, in industry as it, as it changed from letterpress to offset lithography and what that meant for book production. And, and it's, you know, this, is, this was just one snippet. There's a, there's, a, there's a great story that's involved with that, but that's a, that's a whole other topic. So Robert, I wanted you to keep on asking questions because I yes. got the lawnmowers dressed outside my door and I'm putting it on mute. <laughs> if that's the case, um, can you tell us, okay, so we're talking about specifically the 1920 and I am so like uh, geeked out on this to say there is so much information on just the 1920 volume or the 1920 mm -hmm. painting style that creates a full book. So Richard, thank you so much for going so in depth. Um, how many, um, like in researching this, there's a lot, um, there's a lot of in your bibliography, like how many books did you necessarily research, but where did you go to get all of the um, sources and all of like the various editions? Well, the church history library is, you have to go there. Um, and this is actually, as this book looks big and impressive, it's, it's not when you look at some other really serious book histories, you know, from coming from England and whatnot. The, the challenge is that even though there seems to be a lot of documentation, the whole process is just not well documented. There is virtually nothing 
Uh, well, actually, no, there is nothing about the 1948 edition. I, everything that you read in the book has been pieced together from understanding the technology, understanding you know, the copyright re-registration and understanding um, the books themselves, the, the hard printed copies of the books themselves. Everything has to be inferred from that. So as much as anything, it's a puzzle. Um, it's a puzzle with pieces that don't move, but don't also don't necessarily fit together. And that's, that's, that's part of the challenge. Um, where, would, where did I go? Um, I looked at the church history library. There's the James Talmadge diary is essential. That's at BYU. Um, and Talmadge kind of gives some clues about what he's doing as the, basically the project manager for this publication effort. And then I just started drawing in other people and I, and I found bits and pieces in different, in lo, different locations. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a strange story. It's kind of a fun story, um, but like many things in the world that you know they just got done and everybody went forward and they didn't document carefully what happened. Yeah. So the lawnmower, so this is folks, I'm in Florida, 50 year old mobile home, Florida thunderstorms, and lawnmowers. And I try to schedule my <laughs> interviews around those, but Florida's going to Florida on you. So thank yeah. you, Robert, for carrying the torch there. Really cool. Yeah. yeah. So Richard, when we're talking about, so the 1920 Book of Mormon, um, in your book, you kind of separate your book into three parts. And the first yep. one is um, the history of the 1920 Book of Mormon. And what I thought was interesting is you had mentioned like almost missed the year 1920. They most that the publish was actually like November, December of 1920. Can you tell us like why and what happened to create such, let's say delay, but like, did they miss the mark? Were they wanting 1920 or were they wanting to say, okay, when it's done, we'll be ready for it? Oh, no, it was, it was very much a, they knew they wanted to do something new. Uh, the, the book was dated. It, it, it was an old book at that point. Even, even in the 1920s, the Book of Mormon, the, especially the missionary edition, the, the ones that they were really interested in, it was an old book. And it had been in print for 35 years in the form that it had, in the, in the layout that it had taken. And there was some better ways to do things. You know, I, I point out that, you know, the Bible has been in double column for what, since 1611 with the, with the King James Version? Yeah. Uh, and before that, so people understood scripture in double columns. You do double columns because it's quicker to read. You can actually read. Your eye doesn't move as far, so you can move faster through a page. That's why double column is used for Bibles, most Bibles. Um, and the Latter-day Saints just decided, uh, the first presidency in the, in the Quorum of the Twelve, they realized, I think, by that point that, that the publication had really gotten into everybody else's hands. So the Deseret News and the New Deseret Book Company were publishing one set of editions. The, there were other sets, there were people all over the place that were printing these books that didn't necessarily come from the church. They may have been associated with the church, but they weren't from the church. So there were some concerns, a couple of minor typesetting errors had not been caught in one of the uh, printings. And I mean, it was like, you know, a transposed word like of and the, it was, it was ridiculously minor, but that was significant enough for the Quorum of the Twelve that they decided, look, let's, let's just do it from the ground up. Um, there was also a consolidation of business that was happening that, you know, during the, during the raids in the 1880s and 90s, 
the church had, had scattered its business interests out among corporate, uh, small privately ordered corporations. And this was with, with Heber J. Grant coming on board as the president of the church. He was a businessman. He says, look, we're a terribly inefficient business. So let's, let's do something. Almost the first thing that happens is Talmadge is called in and the first presidency says, create some sort of scale, you know, economy of scale in publishing and printing. And then it went from there. And so Talmadge, you know, there were, there were errors, there were, there were, they were out of particular runs of books. And then rather than ordering a new printing, they said, well, let's just go back and, and see what kind of things, what changes have been made. And I walked through all that and what's known all the way through that in the, in the book to try and explain how they went back and looked at the text. And then when they looked at the text, they, they, they knew they had an opportunity because they couldn't reprint exactly the same book. So they decided to produce a new one. And so the question then becomes, how do you do that? How do you do that economically? And how do you do that economically from Salt Lake City? And the way you do that is what they had done for years is that is you don't publish it in Salt Lake City. You keep the, the publisher is the church, but the printer is somebody else. And that's the story that, that I found interesting. And everybody knows about, or many people know about Conkey, WB Conkey Company out of Chicago. They're the ones that did it. They weren't the largest printing company in the world, but they were probably the fastest. Um, Conkey, it was, it was widely claimed and, pro and absolutely true. If someone gave them printing plates, complete printing plates for a book, they could turn around and have 10,000 copies bound and back in the publisher's hands in 24 hours. You know, you can do that today, but in 1920s, that meant you had an awful lot of printing presses and a very good proof room and were very confident in your business model that, that cycled things through. So they were the ones that got chosen. They weren't the only ones, only printer that the church used. Uh, as a matter of fact, Jesus the Christ, every, which, every volume of which says, you know, Salt Lake City Deseret Book Company. No, it was done by James Pot Company out of New York, everything. And there's a story with that book too, that's if you'd like another book to talk about, that would be a fun one to, okay. to, to hit. Thank that's you. a classic. Yeah, so I had an, uh, Brent Ashworth on. He actually uh, has the uh, printer's copy, original printer's manuscript of Jesus the Christ in his collection. Ooh, I'd like to see that. Yeah, and he, well, he talked about that. So that's that we did an episode on that. So check out my show and tell series with Brent. Robert, you look like you have some more questions you want to ask. Yeah, so they mentioned Electrotype, and it, let me make sure that I've got it. The Electrotype was they did typeset and they put like, the typeset together and then they imprinted it on um like yeah they imprinted on different um and made like a full solid metal plate um, yeah let me let me show let me bring up i'm going to share a screen with you here and i'll show you what one looks like okay can you see that yep. this is this is an electrotype plate um, and you, you can, if you go to the contracts, and we have the contracts for the 1920 Book of Mormon, they said they were going to make it two sets of patent-based electrodes. So, so that's an electrotype plate. What you see on the screen is electrotype. You can see that kind of orangey color. That's copper. And the silver that's underneath that, that's type metal. That's uh, a mix of lead, antimony, and tin. And that's a flat plate. And then what you do is you can see it's been scrubbed away part of it. What they'll do is they'll take a router and anything that's not right up close to the type, 
so that you don't get that the, the paper bumping against that. Uh, you, you scrub it away so it's lower than type height. So this is what the printing plates would have looked like. And this is them, but this is, this is what it would have looked like. Um, and it's a, it's a flat plate. Now, let me show you what they would look like in use. And they're a little bit harder to, I actually couldn't use this image. This is, whoops. This is what they would have looked like in use. And I, I, I grabbed this out of, a, out of another book and I couldn't use it in my book because they could not find the print. But what you can see is these plates, I'm hoping you can see the cursor. These plates have got little ears and they bolt onto this grid, this, this slotted grid that goes into the press, it's the press bed. And then rather than have you know, something that's about an inch and a quarter thick for, for foundry type, this is just literally a plate. And then that, that press bed is what you can line things up with to, to impose, the, to impose the, the sheet, the page, and then off you go. Now, part of the problem is I don't know, and no one ever recorded exactly what kind of electrotype they ended up with. They could have had, there were two of them. One of them is called a cut plate. And a cut plate is basically a slab of wood that has these things pinned to the top. And then you plane the back of it so it's nice and flat. And then you put that in the plate, in the, in the printing press. The other type is this one that I just showed you. Um, but I don't know which one it is. And no one ever took a picture and no one has any idea. So all I can do is describe the options and say, this is what it probably would have looked like. So the benefit is that they can... Uh, what keep the plates in their vault and when mm -hmm. the church requests a reorder they just you know they just bring them out and lock them in the chase and lock them in the press and off you go so i just dawned on me so i was the city sealer for this uh for the city of hammond indiana which is borders chicago and i believe my office was located in an old building that was a printing building do you know what building the book of mormon was uh, published in. Yeah, we do. Um, let me get it up and I will show you. This is great. I remember. <laughs> there it is. Come on. This is the look familiar. Oh, we know it's not up yet. Yeah. Oh, it's not. Nope. Oh, I got it. Share. First. All right. Oh, look at that. And that's that is it. That's You're it. Kidding. Yeah. <laughs> no way. Oh, that's awesome. That's the WB Conkey Company. And now, and, and this is this is kind of hard to understand. Let me show you that one and a different one too. Um, oh my that's goodness. the outside of the book. This is about 1909 when the building was you just you've finished. Been there? I worked, I my government office building, the department was located in that building. In Hammond, Indiana, it looks different, but it was. It does I don't now. It was completely. I think part of it was knocked down, but there was a plaque in there saying, or there was a sign, an old sign saying that 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 was the printing. Yeah, like, like yeah. the whole big thing, but there's like an office building. It's it's like part. I don't know if, how much of it, but it was a city. Oh my goodness, this is wild. It's amazing. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, Ham the the Conkey Company was bought by uh, Rand McNally in 1948 or 49. 
And they, they, they ended up using the building for a long time, but then they eventually sold that off. But yeah, it still stands. I've not been to Hammond. I haven't, but I, I'm getting there at some point. But this is what it looks like on the inside. This is, this is one of the press rows. If you look down the side of the building, you could see that there were windows all the way along it. And this would have been just basically like a big Walmart area, but they had these clerestory lights. You can see these angles that they pointed north. So you always had good clear light on the press floor. And then you had every once in a while, you'd have this hanging light for night work. And they ran these things 24 hours a day. I mean, they, they constantly were in motion. They didn't have time to slow down. But this is what the press floor would have looked like. This one is a, uh, I can't tell which press that, that's not a Chandler and Price. I think that's a, that's a, um, a challenge press. So that's a big, this is a medium format challenge press that would have used um, sheets that were, yeah, 28 by 35 or, you could probably do larger than that, but that would give you an idea. This is how the Book of Mormon would have been printed anyway. I don't know if it was on this press, but this was, this was one of a series of things that was done in about the same photographs that was shot at about the same time. Oh, really cool. I got the mowers coming around. So Robert, why don't you take the floor? Yeah, so um, you go through a lot of the history and I, I was really impressed with a lot of the history. Thank you so much for that. And, you know, when I, when I read through it, I was like, Boy, this guy is academic so much more than 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 me. I'm kind of not worthy on, on having an yeah. interview. I appreciate it. Um, in the book, the next one that you talked about, or the next section, was your bibliography around like a listing all of the various books inside the 1920. Before we do that, um, can you tell me? Um, a lot of times, there's a list called the 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 Flake um, bibliography, and I think that they did from like 1830 up. Uh, what did they do and compare to, um, tell me about your um, bibliography or like the, your listing on your second second section of your, your book? Oh, that's a whole other thing. Um, the Flake, Chad Flake actually was a friend of mine. He worked at BYU. He picked up a project that had been started in the 1940s by a guy by the name of Dale Morgan, who um, was Fawn Brody and Juanita Brooks' mentor. And he had started a, a, a comprehensive list of everything that had ever been printed about the Latter-day Saints between 1830 and, um, uh, nine, well, Easter, just later. And then Chad picked it up in the 1960s and they got it published in 1978. That's the Flake bibliography. So anything published about the Latter-day Saints prior to 1930 is listed in the Flake or the Flake Draper, the second edition of the, of the bibliography. Um, the problem is Chad was and is, is and was a, a librarian and it was a catalog. Back in the days before there was, you know, the internet and there was ways to, to, to communicate, libraries printed these long lists of books and you sent it to another library, another library bought it. And that's the way you found out what was going on before the digital age. And there were hundreds of these things. Um, the biggest one was known as Mansell's Catalog, and it was a photograph. It was actually a photographic reproduction of the National Union Catalog from the Library of Congress at about the same time. Came in 900 volumes. Um, so the Flake Bibliography was a way to get scholars 
to understand what was out there in print about the Latter-day Saints in whatever versions. The problem is it's written by librarians and librarians are among the least knowledgeable about bibliography and printing culture. So I can say that because I started off as a cataloger, okay? It's, I, got, I got the chops to do this. And I had to unlearn a lot about bibliography, a lot about library bibliography and cataloging before I could really become an effective bibliographer because they're two different disciplines. They're not intended for the same thing. Um, so what I did is I took a standard of description that comes out of the 1940s guy by the name of Macero um, and, um, oh, what's his name? I can't remember the other guy all of a sudden. Um, I'll think about uh, Fredson Bowers. And Bowers, the development of bibliography really comes about so that scholars could describe in ridiculous detail so that somebody else in another library in another country could read the description and follow in their copy to see if they had something that was the same or different. And what I found was that was really essential for understanding the Book of Mormon, and partly because I'm a geek anyway. Um, and, I, and I used that, and there's most of the things are very similar. You know, most of the descriptions could be cut and pasted out of each other's. But I went another step forward and I put together uh, uh, a list of signings on a book. And the signings are the little numbers of the letters that, that identified the printed sheets for the binder. So you could go through it and say, okay, I've got A, I've got B, I've got C, I've got D, I'm missing E, where is E? And then pull that in or, or something similar. They used numbers in this one uh, for the Book of Mormon. But those, those signings were the way that, that printers put a code on there so that the binder got everything in the right order. And, so, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say, so um, your list is pretty extensive and um, it goes from 1920 to kind of prior to 1928. And um, how long did that take you to kind of go through that list? And um, I'm sorry, are you satisfied, but how useful has it been now to have that in one setting? Well, you have to, it's like doing a puzzle, right? You don't get the picture until you get all the pieces. What I was trying to do was identify how many pieces were in the puzzle. And part of the problem was the Church History Library and BYU, which have the two big institutional collections, and they're the ones that I cite most often as the location for a book, they um, didn't always have, this, have the different printings identified because they didn't care, at least at one point. Now they care. Now they understand that there really is a difference in, in understanding the sequence of things and what changes between printings helps fill out the way that a book is used and distributed. It's a mirror of how distribution happens. And then you can find, you know, I found that you've got the same, you know, books with the same numbers, but they're different content, slightly different, slightly different versions of what's going on. Or the paper is folded differently. That, that's all part of the process. So when you understand the technology, when you understand the, the representation, the physical manifestation of a book, then you have a basis on which to say, well, how widely was this done? And if someone looks and says, well, there was only one edition of the Book of Mormon between 1920 and 1948, that's probably true. But there were probably 60 printings of that book. Wow. So all of a sudden you have a new bit of complication. 
it's a way to, to stretch your stretch your eyes and around and get around. You can't just look at the title page and say it says 1920 on, or it doesn't say 1920 on. Why? And that's what this book was intended to answer. Why? Why do these things look a little bit different to people who look very carefully? Yeah, Richard, huge kudos to you because I was always reading through it. Um, it was, you know, for first half or first part was the history. It's like, wow, I didn't know half of these things and I should have. So, you know, huge kudos to um, an academic doing so much research on the backgrounds of it. And then I'm starting to, you know, Stephen, I'm starting to use this as like a, a reference guide to say, okay, this is the book that I've got. Um, what, which one am I looking at? And to kind of go through this and have this as a, an amazing reference, you know, Richard, um, you know, kudos to you. I'm, I'm so um, honored to even just uh, look at this and talk with you about it. So um, the question now becomes, um, okay, so you said the first printing. Let's go back to the first printing because one of my favorites is the cannot air edition. Yep. And what happened for that? So um you can research this or, you know, viewers can research it. it says that there's one word in the Book of Mormon instead of C-A-N-N-O-T, it was changed to C-O-N-N-O-T. Was one type letter in a long bin and it got pulled wrong? And nope, then... nope. It's much, it's much more. Uh, let me get out of. Tell us more about this particular edition because I love it. And okay. for people that kind of proofread and things like that, they did a great job. But it's amazing that one error like this went through. But. It's not, you know, not surprising, but it's amazing. Tell us more about that particular error. Okay, I'm going to bring up, um, hang on, let me get two, two or three things lined up here. And I will try and deal with them sequentially. So the, the... okay. This is great. Um, Robert, thank you for taking this charge of this thing. I, I, I'm doing this for you as much as anybody else. <laughs> So the reference is uh, Alma 42, verse 1. Yeah. Okay. Whoops. Wrong Wrong one. Yeah, I remember you actually did a video about that particular edition, Robert. Yeah. One of my first ones was the Cannot Air. And uh, once again, I, I've known so much more even since I've been doing this. And um, well, we're all learning. That's, that's yeah, part of love the fun. It. It's really interesting that uh, this one is becoming a book collector's, but I didn't also realize afterwards as well tell us how many of those got printed as well okay so here's the story the book of mormon when you're looking at oops let me get this when you're looking at this you're looking at a plate okay this is this is cast it's cast electrically you, you actually put it in a bath and it, it creates this anyway it's cast let's just say it's cast much easier to explain but it had to be cast from something and the something that it was cast from was the actual type itself. So the 1920 edition was not printed from type. It was printed from plates that were made from type. Okay. So when you're, so it comes and to do that, to set the type, you had to use a machine like this. This is called a linotype. <clears throat> this is a model four, if anybody cares. <clears throat> and a model four, a, a linotype machine is, in my opinion, the most elegant machine ever built. It has a single motor and you can see the motor down here. It has a camshaft that runs through the, the center and all of the action up and down, back and forth, sideways, roundabout, all comes off of the cam that's on this shaft. It is a mechanical marvel. So <clears throat> what happens is you have an operator that sits here and they have a type board 
that have a, a, a keyboard <clears throat> and it looks like a typewriter or a computer keyboard, except that it's not. This keyboard was developed specifically for speed and accuracy. So you could hit these things and uppercase letters, lowercase letters, italic, uppercase, italic, lowercase. They were all in the same keyboard. And then what it would do is it would trip a, a mechanism and up in here, this is a, called a magazine. This guy is holding a magazine. This magazine was gravity fed. So it had a small brass matrix about an inch and a half tall, eh, a little bit taller than that, maybe inch and three quarters. And the matrix would, he would hit a key, it would release one of those matrices that would drop down through these channels and line up right here. And it would look like this. So you can see that here's the, the matrix has got, if you, and you read type upside down and left to right. So if you look at this, this says the, the let's see, it's not a very good image. Now I can't remember. Anyway, this is the word is T-H-E right here. Here is uh, Roman and here's italic and it's on the side of this. And then what happened, and these big tall things are space bands and they're automatic. They will justify the line. They'll, they will go, there's you know, wedges. So they will slide more or less in to, to space out those letters and justify the line automatically. So what'll happen is that this will be dropped in place and a casting head will come and squeeze up against that. And then it will cast that line of type, linotype. Okay, that's where it comes from. So if the case, if the number, if you've hit the wrong key, it'll drop the wrong matrix in. But that means if there is an error in a line, not just in a word, but in a line, you have to recast the entire line. So what happens is someone typed in C-O-N-N-O-T and nobody caught it in proofreading. And that's really what the whole issue is, is that no one caught it in proofreading. So when it gets into press, here's what the Conkey company looks like. This is probably, probably the machines that set the Book of Mormon in 1920. You can, and these are, these are one, two, three, four, five, five of the guys, and there were, there were 11 new machines. So there's some more on the left and there's some more on the right that bends around um, to, to show this. And these things are squirting, you know, 720 degree type metal, liquid type metal. And, and you know, some of it spills down here on the bottom. But this is, this is what these guys did day in and day out. And then they would, they would drop uh, those slugs would drop in here down. Can you see right down there? They're right down there at the bottom and that becomes the galley. And then they went, when it was full, they would what's called dump the galley. They would take that pan out, move it over to these tables that are on the, on the right side here, put another galley in there and just keep going. So when you're setting type for the book, it has to be as wide as the column width. You can't make it up because you're casting a single line. So when you're when you're correcting type, then you take those then you take those long galleys and you run them through a proofing press. It creates a proof. It's a big long thing, about two feet or so, and then you read the proof against the text, your your manuscript or whatever the manuscript was, and then you mark it through. So it's it's a it's a long drawn out process. You go through at least two stages of proof. You do. 
galley proofs and then you do page proofs. And the page proofs are literally a page image that's all been lined up and put together and, and put out there. So you get to see this and it simply got missed not only once, but twice. So that's it, what happened. It, and it was because a typesetter was typing and preparing it and just hit an O versus an A. And yeah, it that's it. That's the only reason. Wow. And so then it uh, got missed from, from that particular reader, the proofreader, and then the, the paper reader as well. Um, yep. There's at, um, least, there's at least two groups of people. There's two, two pairs, two reading, actually three reading pairs that are reading type and correcting and collating all these marks because you've got two people. Then you go through there and you compare what one person missed, another person caught, and vice versa. And you collate all that onto a set of marked proofs. You send that back to the typesetters and they recast the lines individually with the corrections marked. It, you know, there's no such thing as spelling correction. The spelling correction is up here. So everybody has to be very hyper aware of literally every character. So every, every letter, every punctuation mark, every space has to be right. And that's the, that's the way you did it. So how many um, were printed that way? And then when did they find it? And when did they make a correction? Um, that's one of my this is and this is one of my pet peeves because when you look at uh, when you look at the Book of Mormon, nobody caught it through the first printing. So every single copy of every book in 1920 and in 1923, the first reprint of the uh, of the uh, missionary issue, they all have the same error. It's not caught until 1927 and corrected at that point. So there's, there are 11,604 copies that were printed like this and bound in one of four, uh, four bindings like this, plus some of the Talmadge had done especially for himself. And then there were 50,000 of these, 50,000 and something. Anyway, I can't remember what the, the number is on that one. So there's 60,000 books. It's not a rare error at all because every book had it. And then somebody eventually caught it and corrected it. There's another, there's another error that they missed that isn't corrected until later. Was that the uh, first Nephi? Uh, That's the running error. head in first Nephi. Yeah, there was they an found I, one, but they didn't find another one. Yeah, there was an I that was dropped in place of a one, and it wasn't caught in proofreading. And so it was, I mean, it went till it went till later than that. And then after, and this is a technology thing, they they burned they they pulled a bunch of repo proofs and used those to do different kinds of printing plates. And then, so the error was corrected and then it got reintroduced because they were using an older version of the, of the typesetting. So when Conkey caught that Connaught error, that, that one in, in uh, third Nephi, they didn't have to just reset the line. They had to make an entirely new page because remember this is a plate. So they had to reset every single character and everything and reproof that to correct that one error. So, I mean, there's, it's, it's, it's a, there's a, some, some complexity to it. Um, so how long did Conkey have the, um, the contract? And then another printer called Press of Zion comes into the play on that. Did Conkey give plates back to the church or how did that work in terms of who owned the plates and how did press of zion get into the mix 
Well, Conkey held the plates for the church, but they were owned by the publisher. Okay, so Conkey's a printer. They're not a publisher necessarily, at least for this. They're contract printer. So whatever the church wants to do with the plates, that's what Conkey does with them. Um, Conkey held the contract in reproduction until 1920, the 1927, until 1925. And they didn't do anything in 26. 1926, 25, there's a discussion because there's this new Deseret News Press that is trying to get off the ground. And Zion's Printing and Publishing Company had been founded by uh, American mission presidents specifically to publish missionary literature. So there's a division of the territory made, basically. Conkey no longer produces the publication of the Book of Mormon after 19, what, in 1927. Zion's Printing and Publishing takes over the, uh, the missionary issue of the book and reprints it until 1947-48, somewhere along in there. And they do only the missionary issue of the Book of Mormon, except for one nice triple combination that was that's described. There's a whole, whole set of stuff in there, in the book. Um, and then the rest of it is done by Zion, uh, Deseret News Press in Salt Lake City, I think. What I can't prove, because there is no documentation, there's absolutely no press records at all. Uh, what I can't prove is it's quite possible Deseret News Press didn't actually print the book in Salt Lake City. They could have printed it in Chicago. They could have sent it to San Francisco. They could have done it in Kansas City. They could have done it anywhere. Um, it just says Deseret, or it just says Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as the imprint. But it's the imprint's the publisher, not the printer. So there is, there in 1942, 1943, they use reproduction proofs. They pull repro proofs set it up in an in, in imposition with a copy camera and they they create a photo reduced armed services edition servicemen's edition of the book of mormon that's what goes out um, but those are absolutely part of the same issue because it's the same setting of type it's just in a different form so they they move to offset lithography at that point to reproduce those how many copies probably thirty thousand, maybe Nobody ever recorded that either. So th that's part of the story as, I, as I'm explaining how this happens. That's why following the signature signings at the bottom of the pages and then adding other complications like this bindery stamp, uh, which I think is a bindery stamp. I, I actually don't know. Um, is really, it's, it's complex. There is only one reasonably complete collection of English language 20th century 1920 edition of the Book of Mormons, and it's in private hands. The guy has spent enough time literally looking at everything he can find off of eBay, and he's got material that neither the church nor BYU have, and a lot of material. It's not just a few. It's, there's a lot. So it's, it's complex. It's just one of those things that is, you know, it's, it's, it's technology that nobody pays attention to. Books are so common, they're transparent. You know, we think nothing of, of going and getting a new edition of the book. Well, if there's a new edition, a new copy of the book, when was it printed? I don't know. They, they all look somewhat, somewhat the same. And that's what happened with the 1920 edition. That's why paying attention to the ridiculously small details is really important if you want to be an, a completist collector. So, so. I uh, have to say that this has been really awesome. I, I want to ask you, Richard, mm -hmm. um, 
what made you fall in love with the Book of Mormon? Um, I'm, I'm a, a hardcore believer. Um, and my earliest, when I was 13, I realized that I'd never actually read the book. I, you know, I said I believed it, went to church and all those kind of things. And I got in response an absolutely unimpeachable, unmistakable clarity that, has, that, that a divine witness that said, look, this, this book is what it claims to be. And so everything, I, every complication I've ever done as a scholar has to be grounded in the fact that the Lord has told me that he accepts this book as doctrine. Okay, so everything else I've done as a printing historian, as a social historian, understanding the way people use the book and read the book, it all has to go back to that. If there's something I can't explain, at least for me, the Book of Mormon is true. And so let's go from there. Okay, I like, uh, thank you for sharing that. And Robert, I have a question for you. What does the Book of Mormon mean to you? Well, going through this, um, when I was on my LDS mission, um, I had got into a um, bike accident and I went over my handlebars and I broke my collarbone. And while breaking your collarbone, you can't wear a backpack. So my companion wore a backpack and all I could do was carry a Book of Mormon. And so if I'm carrying around a, a Book of Mormon, I, I started leafing through it more and more. And we, it became personal for me because, okay, if that's the only thing I can carry, what can I carry? And the most important thing I can carry around as a missionary was a copy of the Book of Mormon. And that kind of created some interest in me as really making it personal rather than, you know, oh yeah, my parents want me to go on a mission or I'm just doing this because I'm 19 or things like that. And so I think, you know, when you talk to members of the Latter-day Saints or, you know, of the restoration, there comes a point in time where there's a transition for you going through the process. And then the transition is you personally um, buying into it and you personally getting um, your reasons why. And so for me, um, going through like my projects, it, it's really helped me understand that um, humans are humans. And um, one of the general authorities says, you know, how frustrating it is for the Lord to have to use humans to do his work. And if the Lord is very forgiving on us and heirs and, you know, Book of Mormon, you know, heirs and cannot heirs and things like that, that's, you know, I would imagine Heavenly Father just, you know, um, kind of giggling inside, but really understanding that in the long run, that's okay because he has to, he has to work with humans. Yep. And um, because of it, it becomes super personal that uh, um, you create a love for it. And for me, it's transitioned into like archiving all of these editions. And Richard, I really want to give you kudos for, going so much more in depth than I can ever do in two, three minutes in my personal videos. Um, but in general, you know, that's translated to me. Other people will translate into um, sharing more of the book Mormon or giving it out or, or um, preaching more about it or various things. And so for me, it was, this project has actually strengthened my um, love of the book of Mormon because um, I know that number one, it's personal for me. And number two, um, you can see kind of the hand of the Lord kind of pushing in different directions and being okay with human interactions. So I, I yeah. really appreciate 
No. Two two things. I'll, I'll and I'll I'll be go, go away. Number one, I have a son who's who's been dealing with the faith crisis, and he got an he got an interesting answer. Last night I was talking with him, and he's and I said, Stephen, where are you? How are you? And and he said something really profound. He said he had struggled, and his response was the response that he got was, "You have faith in me, not them." Okay, and I thought that's really power. That's profound. It's the Savior who saves, not his leaders. The second thing is that um, as we as we go through this is this is mortality. What I'm doing with this book is merely minutia. It is completely meaningless to anybody except book collectors. Um, but the fun thing is that while mortality is limited, the atonement is infinite. And so which is going to have more power? It's not going to be the mortal failings and flaws and the, and the cannot errors. It's going to be the thing that really matters, the, the, our Savior Jesus Christ and the way that he interacts with humans. I, I agree with Robert. I think the Lord is enormously patient. We get to work with a perfect individual. Guess what he gets to work with? Us. Okay, there we go. Sorry, I was uh, muted there. I, now I got the Florida thunderstorm coming through. Robert, <laughs> you were a really uh, awesome uh, taking the lead on this one. I really appreciate it. I did this for you, dude. And thank you so much. I have to say, you know, people ask me, what are your favorite interviews? And I say, you know, it's hard for me to pick a favorite interview, but I will tell you that my funnest interviews are when I have you on the program. I think that this is just, you and I can just talk about a thing that we love. And Richard, I want to thank you for sharing that with us, because I think we had a good time today. Um, yeah. And thank you for coming on. Oh, I'm glad to do it anytime. I, I love to do this kind of stuff. So I think, Robert, we might have found another presenter for the Book of Mormon Perspectives Forum that meets every Monday night. Paul DeBarth, get ready. I think we're going to have another person. What do you think? That sounds fine. Go ahead and refer him to him. That would be great. Yep. So we'll get you all lined up with that, Richard. I think you're going to enjoy that group. Okay. Um, so was there anything either one of you wanted to add before we wrap things up? Um, and just a, a general sense of gratitude. Once again, Stephen, thank you for kind of providing this particular avenue. Thank you for having me kind of... Um, talk shop with Richard and um, go down paths of history that no other person other than book collectors want. But I yeah. think uh, it, it creates a sense of that there's a sense of passion for the Book of Mormon, both collecting, reading, and talking about it. So once again, Stephen, thank you for having us and me on. This is great. Just uh, as a reminder, so what we're going to do, folks, is uh, by the time this episode airs, Robert will have already released his uh, uh, review of the book. Is one of like is one of his five to seven minute segments that he's really good at doing. So we're going to coordinate the releasing of this so that it's kind of like Richard, you're going to like have like a you know two channels promoting your stuff, uh, which I think is really exciting because this, to me, this my, is my, stunning. My, my my big thing is is like I have Richard Bushman on, I have a Dan Vogel on, I've had all the who's who, but man, I'll tell you when I can take somebody that like Robert, you know, your channel and Richard, you got. I, I, this is what I love. This is what this channel is all about. And I want to thank you both for honoring me, honoring me for coming on. Folks, thank you. I want to thank you and the audience for watching this. I think the fact that I happen to work in the same building that the Book of Mormon was printed, is like that mind blowing. So that's something I did not even realize. And that's what this channel is all about, man. We're just, we're, we're, new ground is being broken here and uh, new stories are being broken. And it's really cool to be part of that. 
And I just want to remind all of you that are uh, to don't forget to uh, you can download our podcasts on all the different forums. Uh, don't forget to go to mormonbookreviews.com if you wish to uh, do the merch store. Also, uh, PayPal, Patreon, if you want to support the channel, there'll be links in the description. And uh, Robert, thank you for doing this. This is great. And Richard, thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. You all have yourself a great day.